0: Hey, I want to ask you a question as we're getting started this morning in the in the Bible story that we're going to be looking at today, which is Luke 5. So give you a heads up, plenty of time to get there. Luke chapter 5, we'll start in verse 17. Here's the question I have for you. When you meet someone new, when you're encountering someone new and you're meeting them and you're kind of looking at them and talking to them, what are the things that you notice about a person that, that is new to you? What stands out to you? What are you thinking about? You don't have to answer out loud, but when you meet someone new, what are you most likely to comment on? I know for a lot of uh, women, like my, my wife would, would say, like, it's, it's hair. You know, she meets another woman. It's like, I love your hair. I love that color. I love the texture or the curls or, you know, whatever it is. It, there's a lot of comments about those, those kinds of things. For guys, or at least for me in particular, it might also be a comment about hair, but it's not the hair on top of their head, it's the facial hair. It's like, wow, that mustache is spectacular, you know, or that, that beard is impressive. How long have you been growing that out? You know, what do you do to care for that? Uh, I met a guy at Trader Joe's who was um, at the register as I was checking out and a few years back, and he had the most impressive mustache I'd ever seen. He looked like the, the villain from Sonic the Hedgehog, you know. It was just this impressive, big, pointy mustache, or it had, I think it had some curls on it, and I had an extended conversation while I was checking out about how you care for that, what kind of products you use, you know, is there a blow dryer involved in you know getting it to look like that, and and I think there was, if I remember correctly, in that conversation. Uh, you might be someone who's got a real sense of style, fashion. Uh, you to, you're like I love that jacket or those shoes are great, but you might have things like that that you comment about when you meet someone. I barely notice your sports apparel when I when I meet someone new, but a lot of people, you know, they they are zeroed in on that, and they they either want to congratulate them on their taste in sports teams or mock them mercilessly, depending on, you know, what it is. How could you be a 49ers fan? That that those kinds of things, right? These are things that we notice about people. When we meet them, when we encounter them, we notice different things. We might make a comment or two about certain things about people. Jesus, when he met someone over and over again through the scriptures, we have these accounts of Jesus making a particular kind of comment about somebody when he met them. And the comment largely had to do with what their faith was all about, like a measurement. He would tell them to their face how much faith they had. He would make these comments uh, to people throughout the Gospels. There's the Syrophoenician woman who came up to Jesus and said, if you could please heal my daughter. My daughter is under this demonic oppression and all of these things are happening to to her. Please heal her. And he he tells her, great is your faith. You have a lot of faith. I noticed that about you. She will be delivered. There's the woman who, uh, who touched his garment, right? They're surrounded, Jesus is surrounded by crowds. He's on his way to heal somebody else. And someone says, if I just touch his garment, I will be made well. And this woman, Jesus says to her, he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He's just constantly commenting on people's faith. Remember the centurion in the gospels. Centurion had a servant who was deathly ill. And he comes to Jesus and says, I've heard about you. I know about you. I know that you have great power. If, if you wouldn't heal my servant, I would be so grateful. Sure, I'll go heal him. And he says, no, you don't even have to do that. Just send the word. I know that you have power and authority. And as someone who's used to handling power and authority, I know that if I tell someone to do something, they will do it. And so maybe you could just send the word and I know he'll be made well. And remember what Jesus says about the centurion's faith. You have impressive faith. I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. He will be made well. So Jesus is constantly commenting, he's noticing and commenting on people's amount of faith. He would just, like, that. I don't think I would do that, by the way, unless I was complimenting them, right? It was, hey, you have incredible faith. For me to just meet a stranger, spend a few moments with them, and then comment about how much faith they had. But Jesus did this. He was a connoisseur of fine faith, if you will, right? Some of you might be into chocolate or coffee and you have your particular kinds of things. But Jesus was always looking for faith. Your faith, man, that's, that's impressive faith. And Jesus did this with his disciples, right? But with his disciples, he was a little bit hard on them, I think, in a, in a way that grew their faith. But remember, over and over again through his time with his disciples, whether that's in the storm and they're in the boat being rocked by the storm and they're afraid, And Jesus comes to the boat and he says, oh, you of, what does he say? Little faith. Your little faith. And then Peter walking on the water and then Peter begins to sink and he's, as he's pulling him out, pulling him out of the water. Oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? Right there at one time, they're afraid about not having enough food for their journey and not having enough bread right after Jesus has done these miracles of multiplying the loaves and fishes. He says, oh, you of little faith. He's constantly commenting on them. And I, I like to think, and I'm not sure about this, and you might disagree, but I like to think that when he called them little faith, when he said, you of little faith, this phrase he would use over and over again, that maybe he had a twinkle in his eye, you know, that it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a condemnation, but it's like, oh, you and your cute little faith. It's so little. I just put it in my pocket, you know. It's like a little baby. I'm going to pinch its baby cheeks, you know. Little tiny faith you guys have. And I think that because Jesus built their faith. Jesus was like, he was constantly growing them in their faith and putting them in situations where they would need to trust him and eventually he would leave his whole mission to them. So he knew what his plan was and he had a good plan for growing them in their faith. In the story we're going to be looking at today, Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26, Jesus notices the faith of the people involved in the story. This is a part of our series, Meeting Jesus. We're looking at these stories about people whose lives interact with Jesus. Jesus comes across these different people and these moments captured for us in time of these meetings that happen between Jesus and the various people that he encounters during his ministry. And the life-changing impact it can have in someone's life when they meet Jesus. So Luke chapter 5, this is early in the ministry of Jesus. We're going to read verses 17 through 26, one of many healing or miracle stories in the ministry of Jesus. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Cool story. Let's talk about what we see in this story. The, the story takes place. Jesus is being vetted by all of these religious leaders. People from all over the place have gathered together to evaluate Jesus, to spend time with him, hearing his teachings. And they're all in this one house. And it's packed in there. And Mark tells us it's so crowded. The Gospel of Mark, who tells the parallel story that uh, another account of it from that gospel, that it's so crowded. There's not even room at the door. This house is just completely packed. And there's this paralytic, this man who is paralyzed, and we don't know the backstory. Did this happen in a fall? Is this a recent injury that he's had? But he's reduced to this survival scenario. He's he's just relying on the kindness of people in his life to care for him, to get anywhere he needs to go, to get the things he needs to survive. He's a paralytic. His life has been reduced to this bed that he lies upon. And we think in, in our culture nowadays, right, we have the American uh, Americans with Disability Act that was passed in 1990, and it affected our physical surroundings. We, we have, you know, wheelchair ramps everywhere now, handicapped accessible bathrooms and things like that. This is anytime you build something, there's all these codes in place to make sure that it's accessible to people that, you know, aren't, aren't able to to move around with the, uh, you know, the, the ease which with, we, with which we take for granted often, right? Wheelchair ramps and all these things, right? But if you go to another country that doesn't have the Americans with Disability Act, right, you see that it is, life is difficult to get around, to be someone in a wheelchair, to get over a curb, all these things we take for granted are, are regular everyday challenges. And certainly in the ancient world, this would have been a very difficult life for this man, but he had friends, and his friends in this story are just great characters, right? We know that they carry him to Jesus. These four friends that are looking out for their friend who has been paralyzed. Life is complicated for him, daily challenges, but he's got friends. He's got these people that are looking out for him. And for these friends, they hear word of a teacher who not only says wonderful things, but does wonderful things. There are miracle stories being spread throughout the countryside. He has power. He can touch someone. He can can say to them, be made well, and they are well. And so they decide, we're going to do this. We're going to get our friend, whatever it takes, we're going to get him to this teacher, to this miracle worker, and they carry him. And they carry him to the home, and then they arrive at the home and find it is far too packed, to get him in there in front of Jesus, right? It is completely full. Now you have a decision to make if you are these friends. Maybe we should wait till he's done teaching and then he can come outside and then he'll see us out there waiting for him and then he can heal him. That's one certainly very reasonable thing that you could have done um, in this situation. But who knows how long he's going to teach? Maybe he's going to teach all night. We don't know. And there are four men on in on this plot. If we had to speculate a little bit about the kind of conversation between them, maybe we can just push our way in. And there's got to be a ringleader, right? If there's four of these men, maybe there's one man that's a little more aggressive about getting this person to Jesus than the others. I have an idea. Let's tear the roof apart on this house <laughs> and get our friend into there. I don't think that's a good idea. That's kind of anti-social behavior, you know. Should we do that? But they together come up with this plot somehow. And these four men walk up the stairs on the side of a Palestinian home at this time. And they go onto the roof that is, uh, you know, strong enough to hold some weight. Certainly you can walk across it. It would be like be used the way people would use a deck on the back of their house. It was the place where you'd sit in the cool of the evening. And they get to work disassembling the roof of this house and make a hole big enough to be able to get their friend right in front of Jesus. And I imagine if you were in this gathering, you're sitting there, all these religious leaders, Jesus is saying these amazing things, and you're trying to listen to the stories that Jesus is telling and these illustrations about the kingdom of heaven and what he's there to do, and then you hear a noise. you kind of like, There's some, I think someone's walking on the roof. And then you're kind of listening some more, and then you hear some other strange scraping noises, and then something falls on your head. You're, you're looking up, you're wiping this thing off, you know, what, what is this? And then, then you look up and you see daylight and a, and a bunch of hands, right, and a hole forming, and, and now no one's listening anymore, right? I mean, it's hard to pay attention to what someone's saying when that's happening above you. And eventually a hole large enough for a person to be lowered is made and they lower him into this home at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and he says, nice of you to drop in. No, I'm just kidding. Puts on those CSI Miami sunglasses, you know, the music starts. Just kidding. None of that happened. But remember, what does Jesus notice about people? He notices their faith. And scripture tells us that he, when he looks And he sees their faith. Let's read that verse again. Verse 20. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And we'll talk about the significance of that for just a moment. But what does Jesus notice? He notices their faith. He's looking at these friends and he says, man, they are unwilling to to let these obstacles between their friend and me get in between them. They're willing to do whatever it takes to get their friend to me. He notices their faith. They believe so much that they're willing to risk all the social stigma of tearing a roof apart of somebody you don't know. I think about Jesus noticing people's faith and just the power of that. And and then I wonder, I think about our own lives. Like, What would Jesus notice about our faith if we met him during his ministry and he gave us a quick assessment? The level of our faith. Oh, you little faith, or wow, great faith. You know, what would Jesus notice about our faith? This trust in God, this this ability or this characteristic of believing that God said something is true, and so that it is true, and that God said I can trust him, and so I will trust him. What is that level in our own hearts and lives? Right, the Gospel of John, I love that these people that Jesus says, oh, you and your little faith, right? That over and over again, and particularly in the Gospel of John, Scripture tells us of the great links that Jesus went through to build the disciples' faith. He, he would tell them things that were going to happen before it happened so that they would trust him more. He said this to them so that they would believe later when it was fulfilled. And this was to fulfill this prophecy. And the Gospel of John takes great pains to point this out. If you read the Gospel of John, you see this over and over again, that Jesus is in this faith construction project with his disciples. That the people who he says, you've got little little tiny faith, he, he is going to leave his entire mission to them. And so he builds them. He grows them. And for all of us in this room who said, if we met Jesus, he walked into this room during his earthly ministry and said, oh, you of little faith, I think we can have the same confidence that Jesus will do the same for us if we'll let him, if we'll submit ourselves to that process, if we'll walk with him and, and grow and you know, go through this life with him and submit ourselves to his faith construction project in our life. I believe God is faithful to take us from, oh, ye of little faith, to people of great faith who believe and trust in God. I love the story in Mark chapter 9 of the man who comes up to Jesus and he says, my son is demonically oppressed. This thing is happening in, where he, this demon is trying to destroy my son. Like he can't speak. He, he will get thrown into a fire. The demon's tried to end his life before. And Jesus, if you could do something for him, I know you can make him well, if you could. And Jesus says, if I can... All things are possible for those who believe. You remember the man's response? I believe, but help my unbelief. And then Jesus turns and walks away. Sorry, pal, not enough faith, right? No, he doesn't say that. He heals this man's son. He delivers this man's son from this demonic oppression. But there's this little moment here, right? It's his prayer. I believe, Jesus, but help my unbelief. There's this part of me that just does not believe but this part of me that does believe. So God, br- help me in this situation. I believe, help my unbelief. And I think God is gracious enough to answer those prayers for us too. When we say, I do believe, but help the part of me that doesn't believe. God is good and, and God is gracious. And I think we can bring those kind of prayers to him. Jesus notices their faith, it says, and then he makes this comment to their friend. Which raises an interesting question. How do you see faith? How do you see faith? He saw their faith. Well, you can't really see someone's faith, right? But you can see what they do, which is a reflection of their faith, right? He saw their faith. He saw the the links they were willing to go to to get their friend to Jesus. So he saw faith based on their actions, right? Faith is not visible, but the outworking of faith is visible. Faith becomes visible when it's lived out. And these men have just taken like the Kool-Aid man approach to getting their friend to Jesus. Just bursting through things, right? Like that we're, we're willing to do whatever it takes to get our friend to Jesus. I, I think there's a lesson for us in this story about persistence as well. When it, and, and being burdened for people that we know that don't know Jesus or that need to get to Jesus. Right, there's this persistence that they bring their friend all the way to Jesus and and there's this obstacle right it's a it's walls and a roof and they just knew though that if they could get their friend to Jesus Jesus would make all the difference this is destiny shaping things that would happen if we can only get our friend to Jesus and we think about our lives and there's people in our lives that God's placed in our lives that are far from Jesus And we just know that if they knew Jesus, Jesus would make all the difference. And we have this sense of of burden for them that, God, please help our friends to know Jesus. Please help my family to know Jesus. Please help my neighbors to know Jesus, my coworkers. And we know that people are hurting. And if they just had Jesus in their life, he would make all the difference. But there are obstacles, aren't there? There are things that keep us from from bringing our friends to Jesus. And I think about things like inviting someone to church, right? That's a, that's a socially precarious situation. I'd like you to come to church with me. There's fear of rejection in those moments. And my, or even just having a spiritual conversation with somebody. My faith has always helped me, and maybe this would be something that would help you as well. And, we're, and there's this little fear obstacle that's there. What if they reject me? What if they want to distance themselves from me? They think I'm taking this whole faith thing too seriously. There's a social obstacle. These men in the story, the social obstacle of tearing apart a stranger's house uh, did not come between them and getting their friend to Jesus. Right there, I mean, that is pretty socially unacceptable. Maybe you invited your friend before, but they they weren't able to make it or they just, you've tried once and, and there's this This persistence that might be needed. And so the question is like, what links are we willing to go through to get our friends and family and neighbors and coworkers to Jesus? There are obstacles, but how will we get through those obstacles? And I think the thing that we can all start with is persistence in prayer for people in our lives who don't know Jesus. May we persist in regularly bringing them before the throne of grace as scripture talks about. Bring them there and ask God to work in powerful, li- powerful ways in their lives. God, break through. Holy Spirit, call people to yourself. May, if you want to use me in any way, may I be available. May we be regularly bringing our friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, people that are far from Jesus, that if only they would get to Jesus, everything could be different. May we pray for them persistently. At the very least, let, let that be something that we can commit to as a church. But the story here, Jesus sees their great faith, their persistence, their willingness to overcome any obstacle. And then how, how we think the story should go is the friend is lowered down in front of Jesus at Jesus' feet. And then he says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And then everyone cheers. Yay, Jesus, you're amazing. Everyone claps. Wow, this man's been paralyzed and now his body's restored. Thank you. But that's not how the story goes. Isn't it weird what happens next? We really think about this and take a fresh look at the story. He looks at their great faith and he says something scandalous to the people in the room. He says, man, your sins are forgiven you. Which might have been confusing for the man lying on the mat. Oh, I think there's been a misunderstanding. I'm here because I'm paralyzed. Paralyzed. Like, I appreciate the spiritual thing you're, you're doing here, but I have a more pressing need right now. I, I can't walk. I'm relying on my friends. Didn't you just see that whole thing, right? This is because I'm paralyzed. And it's like to, to that response, I have a more pressing problem. It's almost like Jesus saying, no, you don't. Like I, I just took care of the most pressing thing. The, most, the biggest need you have right now is your problem with an eternal God. You might think your biggest need is that you're paralyzed, but you need forgiveness of sins. And the room is, they don't know what to do with this. This is a scandalous statement. They're, they're pretty sure that Jesus is a blasphemer, right? It says the scribes and the Pharisees begin to question, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And if I was there, I would have said, right! Exactly, you're getting it. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's the point. Because all sin, regardless of who the sin is committed against, it's a, the sin is certainly against that person, which is a problem. But the sin is ultimately a problem between humans and God. John Stott uses an illustration about three men who are together, and we're going to give these guys disciples' names here, John, Pete, and Nathan, right? So John, Pete, and Nathan. Pete punches John in the face. And they get in a little tussle, right? And they, he gets punched in the face. And so uh, John is holding his bloody nose. There's blood going everywhere. And then Nathan comes up to him and he's to, to, to Pete and he goes, Hey, Pete, I forgive you for punching John in the face. I forgive you. And John's holding his nose like, oh, you you can't forgive him. I have to forgive him. He punched me. Like, what do you mean? You're kind of an outside party here. You can't forgive him. The sin is against me. You punched me. And so the sin is against me. The only one who can forgive the sins is the one who the sin has been committed against. And and when it comes to our relationship with God, this idea, this illustration, the point of this is that our sin is ultimately against God. The The one who we need to receive forgiveness from is God himself. That's our ultimate problem. It's this eternal relationship with our creator that is damaged by our sin. And that is the forgiveness that we need. When we read David's uh, psalm, Psalm 51, um, this story about this, this it's the this psalm of repentance. It's him turning back to God after a dreadful period of sin, like this horrible sin, series of sins that he committed. as a, a, adultery with Bathsheba, She's this married woman. He, he puts this plot together to kill her husband. It's this horrible thing. He's guilty of murder and adultery. And he, in Psalm 51, he pens this, this writes this letter of repentance, this prayer to God. And in the, he says something just striking in it, which is against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We might read that and go like, I think you sinned against Uriah as well. I think you sinned against your whole nation by doing this, but he he's recognizing something in this psalm that is his ultimate issue is this problem between him and God. That, that's the ultimate thing. And Jesus, being God, is in this place of authority where he can offer forgiveness by God, from God, as God to this man. And notice too that it's by faith. He has faith, they, they have faith, and they receive forgiveness by grace through faith. Right, and Jesus, Jesus notices, of course, the leaders and the scribes are in a whole huff about this, right? And this is the first time, at least in the Gospel of Luke, that we see conflict between Jesus and these spiritual leaders. This conflict will continue, It will, will expand, it will be what ultimately leads to the cross for Jesus. But he, he asks them this question, right verse 22 when jesus perceived their thoughts he answered them why do you question in your hearts which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk which is a really fascinating question when you think about it let's think about it for a little bit what is easier to say you, there's a few levels to this right if you think about this this is a deep question by jesus to say to somebody your sins are forgiven is kind of an easy thing to say, right? And and you could say, rise and walk, and that's also equally easy to say, but one of those is going to be proven to be true quicker than the other, right? If you say to somebody, rise and walk, and they don't rise and walk, it's it. Ministry's over at that point. To say your sins are forgiven, it's like, maybe. You know, you can't really tell right right off the bat if someone's sins are forgiven. That's an easier statement to say. One of those is visible, one of those is not visible. In fact, they're both very challenging to do to actually forgive someone's sins. And it's going to cost Jesus everything to do that. To, to say rise and walk is a miracle and maybe would take some, maybe Jesus would be a little more tired after that. Some power would go out of him in some way or something, but actually that's a lot easier for him to say rise and walk than to say your sins are forgiven. There's this, there's different layers to this question. This man and his, his paralysis is a really good picture of our, ourselves and, and our situation apart from God. That, that sin leaves us spiritually paralyzed. We're unable to do anything to better our situation, relying on the help of others and relying on ultimately on Jesus, that Jesus gives us life that we don't have without his miraculous help. Unable to do anything to make a difference in our spiritual condition, we are relying upon God's grace and his goodness to give us life, to to say to us, rise and walk, and for us to be able to do that spiritually. Without answering the question, which one's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? Without it, Jesus just resolves the tension raised by the question. So he introduces this question. They're not sure how to answer. Even scholars today are not sure how to answer that question, which is easier to say? Right? The, the forgiveness of sins will require Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. That's what it will ultimately take. So that's a pretty hard thing to say or a hard thing to do. But without answering the question, Jesus resolves this tension raised by the question, by giving the evidence that he has the power and authority to do both things. So you will know that the son of man has power to forgive sins Verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And this is a sign. The man does it. He stands. He picks up his mat. And he goes home worshiping, praising God, thanking him for his goodness and his provision for him. This miracle, like so many of the miracles in the Bible, the, the, the gospels often refer to them as signs, right? The miracles more about it. It is about relieving human suffering in this case, but it's a, it's got a bigger mission, which is to point to something about Jesus, like a road sign points somewhere. This is pointing to some truth about Jesus. This is a sign. And Jesus says, so you know that I have the authority to forgive people of their sins. I say, rise and walk. And you think about what that moment must have been like—a room packed with people, sunlight peering in through the roof, a bunch of eager friends leaning over the hole, looking down. He stands, and he picks up his mat, and he walks home, glorifying God, praising God. And this miracle is powerful because not only is his spinal column restored. The paralysis is gone, but there's no need of months or years of physical therapy. He has strength restored. And he stands up and picks up his mat and goes home and in worshiping. And everyone is in awe and amazed. And there's this conversation that they say, we have seen extraordinary things today. They glorify God. Amazement sees them all they were filled with awe saying we have seen extraordinary things today and we're told that the man went home glorifying God can you imagine how he felt can you imagine how his friends felt i knew it he did it i knew that if we could just get people to ge- get him to jesus he would make all the difference and he did and i bet they were worshiping just as loud as anybody else in that room they're in awe they're grateful this sense of awe, of being in this place of recognizing how powerful God is and just allowing ourselves to experience it is part of what we do when we worship God. We, we let our minds reflect on the things that God, is, God has done for us, the way that he has provided, the way that he has worked. And we let that feeling just fuel our worship, this amazement, this awe, God has done amazing things. And then we lift up our voices in worship, which is what we're about to do Right now, I want to pray for us, and I'm going to invite the worship team back to the stage. Lord, we thank you so much for the amazing work that you do. We thank you for your goodness to allow this story to be recorded for us in your scriptures. And Lord, I pray for a heart that that for people that are far from you, Lord, that, that like these friends who were just... Passionate about bringing, connecting their friend with Jesus, knowing that Jesus would make all the difference. Lord, your son is is holy and righteous and full of grace and and willing to take us from wherever we are and bring us into a relationship with him. Lord, we are so grateful that we can have that relationship. And Lord, may that be a burden on our heart for the people that don't know you yet. Lord, don't let us walk away from this morning just content to be fine with that. May may we have a sense of passion and just Holy Spirit-fueled drive to bring people into a relationship with you and to do anything we can in spite of obstacles to connect the lost people around us with you, the living God who changes everything. Lord, for all of us, I pray that we would be people who worship you, who praise you, who who recognize the good things that you've already done in our lives and in the lives of people in our community. And Lord, may we, may we just praise you. May that erupt in worship the way it did on that day in that house. Lord, you are good, and we have seen wondrous things. We've seen what you've done for us uh, through the cross and the, the way that you've p- paid the way for us to have forgiveness of our sins and life in you. We were that paralytic laying on the bed. But you said to us, rise and walk. And we get to have this life in you. We get to have this whole new reality because of your salvation and your grace. And so, Lord, may we have just a passion to, sh- to spread that, to share that good news, to be a part of more and more people becoming alive in you, rising and walking themselves. Lord, we love you. We thank you. I pray that you'd bless us now, Lord, as we lift up our voices in worship and praise your name. May you be honored, may you be glorified, we ask in the name of Jesus, amen.